Hey, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In the Pew Bibles, that's page 1785. Um, If you're new, um, for the the last couple of months, actually, we've been leading up to this next six weeks starting today. Um, It's a series we're doing on spiritual gifts. Partly because that's one of the main themes of First Corinthians twelve through fourteen, and we've it's just what's next. But partly because it's something that we really think is worthwhile studying as a church, and we I think that we're going to come a long way from it. Um, I do need to tell you a little bit that um, I have poison ivy on a bunch of places, and I am just really itchy. And I think I took enough Benadryl to immobilize an elephant, and so I think it's mostly worn off now. Because I'm starting to itch more again, but um, if I'm a little more confused than normal, then that might be part of the reason. Besides that my mother-in-law has been in town. Okay. Um, Just kidding. She's really sweet. Just totally a joke. (laughs) Okay. Um, First Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Greece, in a city called Corinth. And he's trying to fix a bunch of their misunderstandings about how the gospel of Jesus applies to our lives. And so let's read this passage. I'm going to read 12, 1 to 11. Now, about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I tell you that... No one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom. To another, the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. And to another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. And all of these are the work of one and the same Spirit. And he gives them to each one just as he determines. I, I really believe, and I, for those of you who go here, if you're new, you might not know this, but I'm not a particularly cheerleading type of pastor. Um, but I, I really do believe that the next six weeks of, of this focus on spiritual gifts could be a, a real game changer for a lot of individual people in their, in their spiritual life, and also for us as a church. And I, what I, I don't mean by that the quick kind of change. I don't mean that the next six weeks is going to be like an extreme home makeover where, you know, this bus rolls up and in like eight days there's this brand new thing and um, everybody takes off their hard hat at the end of six weeks and we're all fully mature Christians doing everything in perfectly spiritual ways. But what I mean is that there is a transformational power that comes from illumination that when, when we really understand, we have insight into how God for, works and functions and what he's doing and how he does it, that that starts a trajectory um, that, that grows and grows and grows and grows. And so when I say it has the chance of being a game changer for us, I don't mean just like this, six weeks from now, you're going to be like, oh my gosh, my life is totally different. What I mean is, is that something will, may start in the next six weeks 
that you will see progressively affecting your life more and more. So that there's an insight about how God works in us and through us that changes the way we think and feel about about God and about our lives and about how we live it out, and that eventually changes our actions and, and really has a profound change. But it's one that grows and matures over time, not one that's super quick. Does that make sense? So before we start, I want to take a couple minutes and talk about what this series is not about, okay? This, this series is not about um, filling volunteer slots. If you're a little, a little bit spiritually cynical, um, you may think, well, I know why we're doing a, a spiritual gifts thing. It's because we, they need 14 more um, volunteers each week in the children's ministry. That's what this is really about. And um, that's really not true. Uh, there's a lot of people here at High Point that volunteer very faithfully. And we're, we're fine in volunteers. Every, you know, we're short every once in a while. But that's not really the point. Um, the other thing is, is if, you're, if you're another couple of steps more cynical than that, um, you need to know that this, um, that this fall focus actually isn't about raising money either. Okay, so I mean, some people, if, if, you're, if you're skilled at cynicism, you might feel like, yeah, I mean, this is, yeah, it's spiritual gifts, but it's really about being more committed to building up the church, that church being the local church, High Point Church, trying to build up High Point Church, which really needs more money. We know where you're going with this, Pastor Nick. And if you're that cynical, you need help. And there, there are some extra chairs in my cynicism support group that you could you could be in. Um, but lastly, and I think it's especially important today to think about this, is, is the third thing that this, um, this spiritual gift series is not about is spiritual gifts. That is that when we look at, when you really look at 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, and you look at what those chapters are actually about, and you read them really carefully, and you try to figure out what is really the burden here of what is being said, what, you're, what you find out is that it's actually not primarily about spiritual gifts. Even though we tend to think of it as the spiritual gifts chapters. So, you're probably thinking— well, then what is the problem in Corinth, and what is this series really about? And, and here's what it is. It's, it's not about spiritual gifts in particular. These three chapters, and therefore this series, is really about spirituality in general. That is, not what are your spiritual gifts. The question is, what does it mean to be spiritual? One of the ways to, to flesh that out is— is um, so probably, if you haven't done this already, in the next week, you should go to the Bible and read 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. It's like two and a half pages. Read all three of those chapters. And, um, and then ask yourself this question. How good a text is this at explaining to us what the spiritual gifts are, how you receive them, and how to utilize them, and so on? Like, how, how good are these four pages as exp- at explaining to us the nature and the status and blah, blah, blah about spiritual gifts? You see, if you've, if you've read this passage and paid attention, one of the things that it really doesn't do is tell us all that much about spiritual gifts. In fact, one of the things that's the most conspicuous about 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is actually how little it tells us about spiritual gifts. And there's a reason for that. The reason is that the passage isn't primarily about spiritual gifts. The passage is primarily about what it means to be spiritual. 
And that that was the huge misconception. That was the problem that pride was creating in the hearts of the Corinthian Christians. And here's the good news, because we're virtually identical to the Corinthian Christians as human beings. That really is our biggest problem, too. And one of the things that we're going to have to face is that virtually the entire way that our neighbors in our city and our culture see spirituality is not at all what the Bible means by spirituality. And we are actually, we actually believe more in the cultural vision of spirituality than the Bibles, generally speaking. And what that is doing to our Christian faith is actually cataclysmic. It's, it's, it's robbing us of enormous amount of peace and joy and a sense of God's presence and a, no, a number of things because we don't really, we don't, we say that we're Christians, but we don't even know how to be spiritual as Christians. Um, so, okay, so here's the, here's the shocker from the passage. There is no phrase in this passage, spiritual gifts. It's three chapters about spiritual gifts. The, the, the phrase or the word spiritual gift does not exist in these three chapters. Now, you might say, well, wait a second, Nick. I'm pretty sure in chapter 12, verse 1, it says, now about spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be ignorant. That's true. In fact, there's two places where um, there's a word translated spiritual gifts. And the, the, the word um, is pneumatikos, which is, pneuma is the Greek word for spirit. And tikos, however, is not the word for gift. Greek is a conjugating language, and so that's just the ending. So it's just masculine, plural, or neuter, plural, meaning non-gendered, right? So what does is, what is pneumatikos mean? It, just, it, it either means spiritual people. If it's masculine, it's the spiritual ones, spiritual people. Or it means spiritual stuff, um, which would include spiritual gifts. But it would just—what it, it would pertain to is anything spiritual. That is, you could translate it. Now, about spirituality in general, brothers, spiritual people or spiritual stuff, now about this whole concept of spirituality, I don't want you to be ignorant. Right? Then what does verse 2 say? Do you remember when you were pagans and somehow or another you were led astray by mute idols? What's the point there? The point is, he's, he's telling the church, he said, you know, not that long ago you weren't Christians and you were really sure that you were doing spirituality Right? But somehow or another, your understanding of what really was spiritual got messed up. And here's the problem. It happened again. <laughs> it happened again when you became Christians. And one of the reasons why you know that's where he's going is because the first thing he lays out about how to be spiritual as a Christian is the most basic concept you could possibly come up with, which is what? If somebody's being really spiritual, they are not going to say that the Savior is cursed. And they are going to be able to say that Jesus is King. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is great. That's pretty elementary, right? That's a little bit like walking into a college literature class and saying, listen, I've read all of your entrance exams, and here's where we're going to start the course. This is an A. This is a B. Right? I mean, that's... It's basically what he does here. These folks feel like they're really advanced spiritually. They're really like, they have this sort of spiritual consciousness, and they're like, they're, 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 it actually, he actually says earlier on in the book, you lack no spiritual gift. So they're, they're using all these spiritual gifts, and he's just like, okay, if you're being spiritual, you're going to be like, Jesus is awesome, 
and you're not going to say Jesus is terrible. Right? And as you get further down, you're like, okay, well, maybe the word spiritual gift is spiritual stuff, but what about later when it says gifts? Okay, well, that's very interesting too, because the word used there is charismata, which charis is the Greek word for grace. But mata isn't gift. It's just, again, it's stuff. So a charismata is a grace thing, right? It's a grace thing. What does that mean? Well, if you receive something completely out of grace, right, then what is it by definition? Something that you freely receive as a gift. So is translating a gift perfectly reasonable? Absolutely. That's exactly how they should, it should be translated, gift. But there's a problem with that because when we say gift, we don't mean gift, Right? I mean, think about it. When somebody gives somebody else a compliment and they say, yeah, it's a gift, what do they mean? Right? At one point, maybe it used to mean something like, "Um, yeah, you're right, you know, I received this. It's not my doing at all, and I have no right to be arrogant. And so, you know, the reason I'm— I can, I can do this is because, because of something given to me, right? That's what gift means. But what does it mean now when somebody says it's a gift? You are right to notice that I am fantastic. Right? Which is precisely the opposite meaning. Right? It's like, it's like when uh, teenagers and 20-somethings um, say literally now. It, it literally means figuratively. Right? The word literally means the opposite. And, I mean, that's what, that's what the word gift has come to mean. So we talk about spiritual gifts, and we think of them in terms of talents. We, we, you know, we, yeah, you know, yeah, it's, it's, a, yeah, it's a gift. Yeah, it's, I, I'm fantastic, you're right. You know, when, you know when, I, when I first started getting good at this, it was a little rough, but then I've done a lot to develop it, and it's a gift. What can I say? I'm fantastic. That's what we mean. And the pro- here's the problem. It totally inverts the whole meaning of this passage. Because what Paul intentionally does is he says, listen, you guys are thinking about spiritual stuff. You're wanting to be spiritual. You want to be spiritual. And that's really a good thing. It's good to want to be spiritual, right? Being spiritual isn't bad. Being spiritual is good, right? So about spiritual stuff, I'm not telling you not to be spiritual. I just don't want you to be ignorant about what real spirituality is, right? And then what does he do? He, he, does, he intentionally does not use the word spiritual gifts, Right? Even in verse 7, he says, the manifestation of the Spirit is for the common good. Why man- manifestation? What kind of word is that? Right? You go to the NIV 1984 translators. What, manifestation? What is that? It's the word for disclosure, right? It's like something that was not seen that becomes seen. That's what manifest means, right? It means revealed or shown. So what's the manifestation of the Spirit? It's just something that the Spirit caused, Right? So after the big windstorms, what did you find all over Madison and the countryside, right? Trees that were snapped off in, in the road and laying all over the place. What was that? That was a manifestation of the windstorm, right? It was an effect of the windstorm. So when Paul says a manifestation of the Spirit is for the common good, what's he saying? Well, he's not saying gift. What he's saying, he's not saying, oh, there's these spiritual— He's saying anything that the Spirit does is what we're talking about. Why? Because he is defining spirituality fundamentally differently than we do. That's why. Because the spiritual thing is not just a spiritual thing, it's a grace thing. The pneumatikos, the spiritual stuff, is a charismata, it is a grace thing. Why is that so important? Because we don't really believe that spirituality is something you simply receive. We believe spirituality is something you do. We don't, we don't really believe that spirituality is something we receive. 
we believe that spirituality is something you do. And I would submit to you that if you believe that, if when you look at your life, what you see is yourself doing spirituality rather than receiving it, I would submit to you that you have received that from the Eastern religions or the continental philosophers and not from the Bible. That is, that before he can even talk about how you ought to use spiritual gifts, what we ought to do with the manifestations of the Spirit, the first thing that you've got to realize is that spirituality doesn't have anything to do with your spirit in terms of its Christian definition. When Christians say the word spiritual, we don't mean something your inner, inner psychological life is doing. The inner you, however many voices that is in your head, but whatever you think about is the you that resides in here somewhere— that's usually what we think of as our spirit or our soul, our heart, will, emotions, blah, blah, blah. And we think of spirituality as something we're doing with that. Right? And see, Christianity doesn't mean that. When we say, now, our na- that's how our neighbors define spirituality, and we can't tell them they can't use that word that way. It's the English word. They can use it how they want to use it. But what we need to know is that's not what we mean. When Christians say spiritual, what we mean is it's something not that our spirit does, but it's actually something that God in the person of the Holy Spirit does. And when something is being done by God the Holy Spirit, that thing is spiritual. Authentically and truly spiritual. And therefore, when that Holy Spirit is doing something in us and through us, then by definition, that thing is spiritual. And we then, by definition, are being spiritual. But you'll notice that that's not something we conjure up and do out of a technique. It's something we receive. It happens to us. And one of the reasons why this is so important is because Christians are constantly frustrating themselves and getting angry at God and believing he's not really good to them because we have inverted the whole way the universe works because we we do in our spiritual life what we realize we couldn't do to save ourselves. Right? I mean, think about this. Think about all the things, the major events of God's work in your life. One, you're coming into existence, right? The fact that you were born. What technique did you use to be born? Right? The crying technique, right? Right? The fact that you were born is because God predestined and providentially decided that you would exist. He used natural means to do so, and it probably included a uterus. And then you were born, and you received that. You really didn't do anything, right? And so you came into existence by grace, right? By God's free generosity, you came to exist. And then somewhere along the line, if you're a Christian, you came to believe in Jesus. You came to recognize that you couldn't do anything about your own guilt before God, that God was entirely righteous, and his anger and wrath towards you was completely justified and totally proportional. There's nothing you could do about it, and you needed a rescue. You needed what's called redemption. And you, you heard the news that that had already been accomplished for you by Jesus through his death. And so God didn't give you advice if you do this and you do that and you do this and you do that and you, you create these, these events and you do these techniques, you'll get this inner consciousness and then you'll be spiritually free. No, you didn't get advice, you got news. Jesus died for you. Believe that and you will live, right? That's, that's what the Bible says, right? And it's ridiculously passive, isn't it? You believe and you receive salvation from God. It's an act of grace, Right? Generosity on a jolly level. Right? And then what happened? And then you realized you needed to grow. 
right? You needed to be redeemed. You needed to experience full redemption in who you are, that we're, that we're meant for spiritual growth. And, and we need to, to stick with it. We need to stay in the faith. And so, so what did we do? Well, what most of us did was we got about the work of doing it ourselves. We were justified, or we, we came to belong to Jesus by faith, but then we got about the work of sanctification or transformation by accumulating Christian techniques to create Christian states of consciousness that hopefully would bring about behavior that would cause God to continue to love us so that we would be changed and we would stay in the faith. That is, we came to Jesus by trust, but we tried to live out life in God through works. And one of the reasons why so many, so many people, probably people in this room, were so, felt such inner happiness and pleasure when you first believe in Jesus, but it seems like it has been forever since you felt that, is for this reason. You started out by grace. You started out by God's free favor. You didn't believe in advice. You believed in news. That you had all, the work had already been done. If you would just believe in and trust in Christ and he could be yours and you could be saved and all of your guilt gone in a new relationship with God and God himself would live in you in the person of his spirit and all that was already done, already accomplished. All you had to do was open up your arms and receive it no matter how bad you'd been, no matter how miserable a state you were in. In a, in a blink of an eye, you could belong to Christ, right? And that is, that is some good news. And when that happens to people, they're happy. And then five years down the road as Christians, or 25 years down the road as Christians, they're miserable, and they're making everybody else miserable. And they're a bunch of legalists, and they're frustrating, and yet there's a few of them bouncing around that seem to still be happy. What's the difference? The difference is the happy ones started out in grace— and somewhere along the line, they figured out that you just keep going in grace. That is, that spirituality is just like salvation in that it is a free gift of God. Because what is spiritual is that which is from and of the Holy Spirit, that is, God. So, quickly, I want to go over four insights that we could experience if we believe that, that come from this passage. And I, I, I just believe this is incredibly important to set up what we're going to do over the next six weeks, okay? The first is real spiritualities of the Holy Spirit. <gasps> Crazy idea, right? Real spiritualities of the Holy Spirit. That is, it is not— the, the product of techniques that we accumulate to bring us to certain states of consciousness. It is simply that which the Holy Spirit does. Now, that has with it a couple of corollaries. One, you've got to believe in the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you know, um, non-charismatic evangelicals, which is sort of the group we tend to fall into, are, are often described as people who, people who believe in the Holy Trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Scriptures. And, and for a lot of us, that actually is a fairly apt description, you know? The Holy Spirit exists to help you understand the Bible. That's pretty much what happens. Gets you to believe in Jesus and to help you understand the Bible, and that's about all. The idea of a dynamic 
um, a relationship that's ongoing where there's leading and you're discerning and you're trying to figure out what's happening and there's and you're like, oh, I think God is doing this in my life now and I feel like God is um, is sort of trying to communicate this or that to me and let me check this out and what do you think? That whole thing that's terrifying, um, we often aren't big on that. But here, but here's the thing. Depending on how you work that out, here's the first thing, first commitment that has to be made. That we actually believe in God as he presents himself in scripture. That is, that he is triune in personhood, that he's one essence, one being, and three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And both, all three are personal. That's why we never refer to the Holy Spirit as it. Right? Why? Because most people, when they think of spirituality, they think of spiritual power. They don't think of a spiritual person. And if, if the spirit that's out there is sort of a power, it's this sort of absolute energy in the universe that busts out karma and dukkha and all this kind of stuff, then, then, then what do we do? Well, if it's an impersonal force, you better have techniques by which you interact with the impersonal force, right? And so spirituality through techniques makes a lot of sense. But if, if the energy that's out there is actually a spirit who is a person who makes choices, believes things, and cannot be manipulated, how, good, how useful are techniques? Right? They're silly, ridiculous practices that make us look like foolish individuals. You see— and so if, if, our, if our neighbors and our friends have lots of spiritual techniques that they use, they're not being illogical. They're simply demonstrating that, the, that, that what they believe the spiritual reality is, is sort of a general spiritual power out there that somehow connects with our inner psychology. And therefore, the only thing we can do is, is develop these spiritual techniques to come up with the inner states that we're after. But you see, as Christians, we don't believe that. As Christians, what we believe is, is that God himself— is expressed to us and comes to us in the person of the Holy Spirit. It is not a vague energy force. He is a person. That's why we have to say he. Does that mean that we're protesting for the Holy Spirit's maleness, right? That the Holy Spirit is a dude and therefore we call him he? No. We say he because in English, you have to say either he or she to denote personhood. If you say it in relationship to the Holy Spirit, what people hear is not that he doesn't have a gender. What people hear is that he is not a he. He's not a person. He is not a one who believes and has choices and may, has a will and is, is doing something as a, as a being. They, they hear sort of general energy feel they're somehow emanating from God and whatever. You see? But once you believe that there is a person of God, the Holy Spirit, there's two things you need to, you need to say. Okay, what is, how do I interact? And two, what is he like? You see, it's, it's funny to me sometimes where people feel like they know what God the Father is like because they've read about Jesus. But they don't make the logical connection that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, because they are one being and one in essence, that as three persons, they share one personality. Right? Have you ever run into to identical twins? Are they the same person? They're not. I mean, not technically, right? But are they kind of the same person? <laughs> Some of them, right? And you, you see, in that sense, we— th- Sometimes we think that because the, the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are different persons, they have very different personalities. The Bible does not present the persons of the Godhead that way. They are three persons who share a personality in that their values, desires, 
purposes, mission are the same. They, they act out different roles in salvation. Their roles are different. But, but the, the heart of who God is morally and personally in terms of his goodness and his character is shared by all three persons of the Holy Spirit. So if you're like, okay, this whole, being spiritual is what the Holy Spirit is doing. What's the Holy Spirit like? He's exactly like Jesus. That's why the Holy Spirit can be referred to as the Spirit of God, meaning the Spirit of the Father, meaning that what the Spirit does exhibits the Father's personality and characteristics. And you can just as easily, the Bible does refer to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Jesus. Why? Well, which is he? The Spirit of the Father or the Spirit of Jesus? Well, because he expresses the personality of God, he is equally the, the Spirit of the Father. You see what I'm saying? But here's what that ultimately means for us. What does spirituality look like? You see, if you believe in the Holy Spirit, then spirituality is not a group of techniques that create an inner conscience in you. Spirituality is simply you and I interacting with the Holy Spirit. That's all spirituality is. That's all it is. It's no more than that. It's the fact that God gives the Holy Spirit to Christians, and we, because he is a person, have to interact personally and that's why we refer to the Christian life as a relationship. Because we are relating with a person, and that which the Holy Spirit does is what is spiritual. And therefore, here's the thing, that's why you don't have to try to be spiritual. If somebody asks you, as a Christian, how are you spiritual? You say, this is what you say. I, I, this is how Christians are spiritual. We just pitch the whole idea of being spiritual. That's how we're spiritual. We pitch the whole idea of being spiritual— because we recognize it's probably just going to lead us in the wrong direction, and we just interact with the Holy Spirit. And then what we find out happens is we act, we're spiritual. Spirituality, like originality, cannot be accessed directly. It's a secondary thing. Don't try to be spiritual. Try to have a relationship with the Spirit. If you have a relationship with the Spirit, you will be spiritual without even trying. If you try to be spiritual— what you will probably do is get wrapped up into techniques and practices and you will end up then pushing the Holy Spirit away because you're trying to manipulate something, uh, the, the Spirit in a way that you can't with God. God is God. Which brings us to point number two. Which is, spirituality is predetermined because God the Holy Spirit is sovereign. He's king. You can't manipulate him. You can't tell him what to do. Right? Why do spiritual techniques not work with God? Because he doesn't give a rip about them. He doesn't care. You can't get him to do something because of something you do. He already knows what he wants to do. He's already going to do the maximally loving, beneficial, beautiful, kind, gracious, generous thing. He's already going to do that. And if our spirituality is somehow trying to manipulate him to getting ends that we want, he's, he's not going to be moved by that. And that's why there's so many tired Christians who they want a certain end and they think, okay, I'm going to do what it takes to get God to do this. Why don't Christians fast? Because they did it once and God didn't do the thing they wanted them to and they're sick of it because they don't even know what it's for anymore because it's supposed to be to get God to do what you want and he doesn't do it. And so why do virtually no American Christians ever fast? Because they don't, it's, it's, it's too much to invest in the technique to get nothing back from it. Right? Who wants to not eat when there's fudge, right? 
But that's the whole, that's the whole idea. And until we get in our heads that there's a Holy Spirit, that's what spirituality is, in, engaging with God, the Holy Spirit. And once you realize that that God is totally sovereign, free, knows exactly what he wants to do, you, you can't play games, you can't manipulate him, he's not insecure, you can whine at him, and it's like a two-year-old throwing a temper tantrum. It's not like colleagues arguing, okay? And once you realize that is what God is, it really will change your attitude toward how you're acting spiritually, right? Look at verse 11. All these are the work, that is all the gifts that they had. All these are the work of the one and the same Spirit, and he gives them to each one, what? Just as he determines. Just as he determines. He already knows what he's going to do, and he's going to do it. And you don't have any, you really say any say in it. Even though we as Christians are to seek the Holy, Holy Spirit, and as we seek the Holy Spirit, we want to seek anything the Holy Spirit has to give to us. So we're going to seek things we're not going to get. And if your theology of seeking includes that you have to get it in order for that seeking thing to have been authentic, then you've got a real spiritual problem because most of the things that you will seek, you will not receive. Because it's not God's sovereign purpose for you, right? Now, that ends up creating a really cool outcome because it allows for us to be a radically unified people and a radically diverse people at the same time, right? Because if we're all interacting with the person of the Holy Spirit, there's going to be a lot that's going to be exactly the same for every one of us, right? Are we going to believe Jesus is Lord and not cursed, right? Absolutely. Are we going to be passionate about God? Yes. Are we going to want to worship the God who deserves it? Yes. Are we going to want to be part of his mission in the world? Absolutely. Are we going to, right? And I could go on, right, with all of the things that every Christian will share if we're really interacting with the person of the Holy Spirit and his personality affects our personality, right? But you can also imagine that because God's personality is infinitely complex, his loves are infinitely complex, that, that God the Holy Spirit has desires and that he's not going to share all of them with everybody, right? So let me, let me give you an example. Does God the Holy Spirit want to be a sound guy? Does he want to be, a, does God the Holy Spirit want to be a sound guy? Does he want to be the guy that like helps make sure that the music at worship and all the electronics and stuff all works right so that the musicians can play what they want to need to play and that we can respond and we can have this moment where we all get together and worship God? Is the Holy Spirit, to see into that, Right? Answer, yes, right? Yes. God the Holy Spirit wants to be a sound guy, right? He has a passion for being a sound guy because, because, he's pa- because he has these, the passion for worship, right? He wants, he wants God's name to be seen and enjoyed and cherished. And one of the things that, one of the past sub-passions is we're able to do it together through technology, right? So does God, God the Holy Spirit want to be a sound guy? Yes. Now is he going to impart that secondary subsidiary passion into all of our hearts? No, he's not, right? Why? Well, one, because we'd have too many sound guys. And based on their normal personality type, there can only be so many of them, right? But, but also, right, but also, how many of these secondary subsidiary passions does the Holy Spirit have? How many applications are there of the central core of compassion for humanity that God has? How many ways can that be worked out? How many subsidiary passions do you think there are for compassion? 50,000? 100,000? 2 million? How many could there possibly be? What about worship? That God's name would be seen and known for what it is. How many subsidiary passions for that actually working out in the world does there need to be? 
musicianship, writing, technology, theology, right? So you see what, what is produced here is that there's this profound unity in the gospel that everybody has by interacting with the Holy Spirit. But yet, in, for each one of us, the Holy Spirit has other purposes in his subsidiary passions, and he chooses among these subsidiary passions what's right for you, the one he wants to put in you. And he, he takes it from there, and he puts one in you, and he puts a different one in you, and he puts a different one in you, and there's a relationship you're having with the Holy Spirit in relationship to this subsidiary passion that you share and that this other person does not share. And the result of that is two possible results. The result of that is you could decide to be proud, right? That, that God shares this passion with you, and you have this subsidiary passion, and you see how important it is, and nobody else seems to know how important it is, right? You are in the nursery because you, you know from months 6 to 26 are just the most critical for child bonding, and we know how important bonding is for long-term psychology, and blah, 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 and that's this, and God wants nurturing to be so good during those time periods, so having the nursery be so good is so important, and you look, and there's people, no, people don't want to sign up for the nursery. Even moms who have nursery-age kids, they don't want to sign up. It's because they're crazy. It's because they're going crazy, right? They don't want to— but you know, you know how important it is, right? And so you look with judgmental eyes at all these people who drop off their kids and leave without signing up. And you're thinking, these people don't love Jesus. They don't love God. They don't love people. They don't love anything but themselves and their leisure. And they're laughing at Nick's intermittent and not very funny jokes. And, and this is just, it's not what God wants for us. And I need to go to another church because nobody loves God here, Right? I mean, just, I mean, just go to a normal congregational meeting at most churches. I mean, people fighting over colors of flowers and whether or not the organ should be redone and when we, I mean, like, just the craziest stuff because they think that their passion, that, that God really is doing something in them is in some way, it's some way defective that other people aren't experiencing it. Same thing with gifts, right? I... I love communi- trying to communicate God's word. I try to, try to figure it out, look at culture, try to figure out how these work together, and try to make it clear and compelling for people. I love doing that. I spend a lot of time doing that. And I, I honestly, I honestly have this frustration. That I just wonder why nobody else seems to care about it. People just, you know, they'll listen. Oh, nice sermon, pastor. They walk out and nobody cares. Nobody else wants to, like, go come to my house for, like, a nine-hour study session. Nobody wants to come to my advanced Greek class. I mean, I don't—and I don't get it. I don't understand why. Here's why. Because God the Holy Spirit has a passion for God's name, that we would know and be known by Him, and we would enjoy eternally the blessing of seeing and savoring Jesus Christ. And one of the subsidiary passions of that is seeing and understanding and communicating clearly for God's people God's Word. And He shared that with me. And I'm passionate about it, right? But for you, it might be teaching public school kids, or it might be um, being a mom and doing 500 things well to, to create this thing called a household, which is a mini kingdom meant to represent the greater kingdom. Or, or, or may, it can be a thousand different things, you see. And if we really believe that God is sovereign, then you don't have any right to be proud towards somebody else if they are seeking the Holy Spirit. 
Because the Holy Spirit is sovereignly dispensing gifts and sovereignly dispensing his subsidiary passions, and his intention is that we would be sub-passionate about a vast variety of things, and we would therefore have a variety of gifts to accomplish those things. And so if we really believe that what we need to encourage each other to do is not believe just like me in terms of exactly what you should be doing, what gift you should have, but in terms of are you seeking the Holy Spirit? Are you seeking to understand better the person of Christ? Are you asking him to illuminate the scriptures to you? Are you, are you trying to walk dynamically with him as best as possible to figure out what he's doing? Is that happening? Okay, now share with me the subsidiary passion God has given you because I want to I value it like the ones he's given me and I want to see how they're both expressions of the gospel and I'll help you think through yours and you help me think through mine and whether or not they really are outworkings of the gospel or whether or not they really are just vestiges of self-centered selfishness. Does that make sense? But that comes from recognizing that the minute you accept that spirituality is that which is of the Holy Spirit, you are not dealing with a vague energy force you use techniques to organize and manipulate. You are dealing with the sovereign God. And that's a—you need to bring a totally different attitude to the table, don't you? Third is spirituality, spirituality is of grace and mercy. Spirituality is of grace and mercy. Um— the reason why—here's here's what that means. That is, you and I are spiritual because we receive the Holy Spirit from believing in Jesus. That is a free, absolute act of grace and generosity that God does that has nothing to do with your accomplishing of different techniques. Um, I cannot tell you how many years I have wasted um, using the Christian um, discipline of prayer— as a form of transcendental meditation of Eastern mysticism to try to create the thing that I should have been asking God to give me. Here's what I mean by that. Um, Here's what what I think most people do when they go to pray, because C.S. Lewis did it and I do it, so you probably do it too. We go to prayer, and one of the things we recognize is, is that we know that God's purpose for us in making us like Jesus is for us to become more loving people, right? We all know that. We all know that God's, one of God's great desires for us is to become more loving people. So you go to prayer and you ask God, Lord, would you make me more loving, right? Now here's the problem. That took about one second, right? Now what? Everybody knows if you're really spiritual, you're going to pray for another 37 hours, right? So now what do you do? God, please make me more loving. You figure out a way to say it in lots of different ways. You say Jesus and Lord a lot and just. Lord, I just pray that you just make me loving and just really Jesus, make me loving to love people. And then you can list people you're supposed to love. Lord, can you just like make me loving toward my husband and wife? And would you please, Lord, make me just loving? You know, I'd be like, this is what it's like, right? I mean, and you kind of feel like this is stupid. Why am I, this, isn't this stupid, God? I, what's happening right now? What are we, what are we doing? Aren't my intentions perfectly clear And aren't you going to do what you're going to Should I go make dinner (laughs) Hello You see so what ends up happening I'm not saying praying for a long time is bad I I think that you you just pray till you're done Quit being a pagan And restating things 50 times Talk to God Try to listen as best you can in case there are impressions that you feel might be from him that you can test with scriptures on. And when you're, when you're done, you feel it emotionally. You feel like you're done. And you, then you stop. You just stop. And sometimes that might be five minutes. Another day it could be an hour and a half. Who knows? I don't know. But you just pray till you're done. 
And if you're done and it's been four minutes, then you're done. Okay? You're, you know, a piece of bacon, not a potato that day. I don't know what to tell you. But see, that, that's the, so what ends up happening is, what people do is, you say, God, please make me more loving. I know that's what you want, and so I, please make me more loving. And now because we don't know what to do, here's what we do. We try to create a feeling of loving inside of us. Right? Because we want to believe God is giving us the thing immediately that we asked for. And so what oftentimes people have is they try to feel loving. Okay? So God, please make me more loving. And then they start to try to feel loving. Okay, you just became a Hindu. Okay, that's what just happened. Right? You went from Jesus or, or God, Lord the Holy Spirit. Um, uh, I know you want to make me more loving. Would you do that? I want to cooperate in that process. How are we going to do this? Right? And then you stopped being a Christian and you started being an Eastern mystic by trying to use some technique of inner consciousness to create a transcendentally stable place in which you felt loving, which lasts for about nine minutes when you actually walk away from prayer because it's not a very effective spiritual discipline because, well, God doesn't use it, and there's a reason for it. But, in, but, that, but our frustration is we don't think it's that simple. We don't think it's as simple as, God, please help me be more loving. Now I'm going to walk out into this world and I plead, will you be there to sort of convict me and prompt me when it's time to be loving? Because you know when you're going to feel the Holy Spirit? Here's when you're going to feel the Holy Spirit. You're going to see, you know, a prayer and you say, God, please make me more loving. And you're not going to feel the Holy Spirit. And you're going to be like, why don't I feel the Holy Spirit? I really want to feel the Holy Spirit. I don't. I'm going to try to make myself loving. That's not, that's not when the Holy Spirit comes. You get up, you walk out, and your wife was like, that was kind of a long quiet time. You know, we've got to get the kids, kids to school. And you go, and that's when you feel the Holy Spirit. Shut your mouth. <laughs> right? The conviction comes and you're like, how do I respond to this graciously? You're right. Um, let me do the rest this morning or something. something I don't know what it is. But, it, but it's in the loving moment. The moment when you're supposed to do something loving, the moment where it's hard to be loving, that's when the Holy Spirit is going to show up. Not, what's he going to do when you're praying? He's just listening. Okay, you want to do that? You want to be it? We'll see. We'll see what happens when that moment comes. And I'll be there for that. I will work in your conscience and you will know something is happening. Right? I have no idea what that was about. <laughs> but, okay, so here's, the, here's the point. Do you see, the, the point is, is that it's, it's of grace. You see, these are religious words, and so they don't mean anything to us. Grace means just favor and generosity. Grace means nothing. It, it means that you do not have the moral right to ask for something, but somebody else gives it anyway. You know what mercy means? Mercy means is that you're, you're in a miserable state and somebody wants to give to you be, just because they, they care that you are in a miserable state. That's what benevolence and compassion do. And that's what God is like. And, he, and, the, and the reason that's a problem is, and here's why this is a problem. And this is why we struggle in our spiritual disciplines, in our spirituality. We don't believe that God is benevolent. You want to know why you don't think prayer works and why all these things in your heaven trouble being spiritual. You don't believe that God is benevolent. There was a study done some time ago where people in professions were asked, um, uh, how much money would you have to make to feel like you made enough? Right? I've told you this before, right? And, and the— uh, and this, and so they, they asked people who made, you know, $20,000 a year. They asked people who made a couple of billion dollars a year. And they, they said, um, how much would you have to make to feel like you made enough? Like you were free to be who you want to be and you were happy. And all the way along the spectrum, the answer was exactly the same. They would name a figure 40% more than what they were making. Isn't that funny? 
Think about home buying. What does everybody buy? What, what, you get in the housing market, what do you end up really wanting to buy? You feel like, oh, if we got that house. It's the one that's 40% more than you can afford when you set your number. Everybody has this. And, here, and here's, here's my question. How much more favor and grace would God have to show you for you to be happy? For you to feel like God is really benevolent. God is, is honestly so compassionate towards me, and I can see his graciousness towards my immoral being and his mercy towards my miserable state constantly in my life. I suspect it would be about 40% more than what you're currently receiving. And that's not his problem. That's ours. And so we can never get to the place where we're really interacting with the Holy Spirit in living out Christian spirituality until we recognize that the whole relationship is based on grace. He is totally sovereign and he wants to be in this relationship. He's in everything to make it. He's created you. He's redeemed you. Now he's doing a work in you. He will ultimately redeem you forever in final salvation. And he is in this relationship now because he's obligated to be in this relationship. He is in this relationship because he wants to be. And the thing that is, that is holding that up is not the fact that he cares about you. The thing that's holding up is that we don't really believe that that's what God is really like. Which is why, as Christians, we keep going back to Jesus. Jesus is God's intentional example to persuade us that he does, in fact, care and is benevolent and wishes to save, but is totally sovereign, right? And then lastly, fourth, spirituality is for grace and mercy. It's not just of grace and mercy, it's for grace and mercy. Verse 7, now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for what? For the common good. Right? That is, that God isn't just benevolent with us. He's trying to create benevolence in us. And spirituality always dies quickly when we don't want what God wants. And think about it this way. This is one of the things I love about Christian spirituality. Let's say something was to happen inside your spirit. Let's say the Holy Spirit was to come and do something inside your spirit. And there was a real change. There was something really um, God-centered that happened inside of you. How would that get out? Like, if there's a real spiritual change in you, how does that get out of you? Right? Well, there's only one way anything gets out of our inner psychology or inside of us. It's through our body. We're not angels. We're not pure spirits. We're embodied. And so, you see, the end of Christian spirituality isn't some kind of inner state. The end of Christian spirituality is the outflowing of God's benevolence and compassion, something that we have come to call love. What is spiritual? Love is. Christian spirituality is God making us loving. It's not very mystical, is it? But you see, if you realize that spirituality is not just of grace and mercy, but for grace and mercy, that won't sound very odd at all, and it will sound very spiritual. And in order for us to really experience the transformation that we're after, 
we have to get these confusions straight. We have to know what spirituality is before we can talk about spiritual gifts, don't you think? Um, I saw on Facebook a, um, a conversation between my niece, Karis, whose name means grace, right? And her mom. They sat down to dinner, and Karis said, I'm going to feed Jesus pizza now. And she took a big bite of her piece of pizza. And I mean, said, uh, I'm sorry, Karis said, Karis, he lives inside my stomach. Amanda, you mean he lives in your heart? And she just looked confused. But that's, I mean, that's, cl- I mean, that's classic four-year-old, right? But our, our spiritual theology is ju- can be just about that confused. Unless we start, before we even talk about spiritual gifts, we start with God, th- spirituality comes from the person of the Holy Spirit. If you want to be spiritual, stop seeking spirituality Start seeking the Holy Spirit. Secondly, the Holy Spirit does exactly what he wants to do. He is totally sovereign, and your spirituality path is predetermined, and it is unlike anybody else's. It is mostly the same as everybody else's, and yet in certain ways, unlike anybody else's. And therefore, mentoring is possible, but copying is not. Third, He gives out of a motivation of benevolence, compassion, grace, and mercy, not on the basis of our obedience or our techniques. So stop trying to earn it or work for it. If you work for it and try to earn it too hard, it actually stops the work of the Holy Spirit in your life because he doesn't want to make you more of a pagan. You see? And if you're trying to seek the Holy Spirit through religion, he has to withdraw because if he comes to you within the functionality of religion, he's going to make you more religious. You'll do more of what works and you'll become more and more and more of a pagan. So he has to withdraw. You see? You have to come back to grace and you have to realize that's not just meant to flow into you, but out of you. And you have to, if you're going to be spiritual, you have to accept what the Spirit's work is for. And that is the common good and love of others. And if we recognize that, if we recognize those four things, and if we decide that we, if we want to be spiritual, we have to seek the spirit and not spirituality, then I think we'll quickly get to the place where we can start talking about the ways in which God the Holy Spirit is going to change each of us and gift each of us for the common good in his sovereign purposes. And embracing and living out our spiritual gifts will have a profound impact on the church in building her up, but also with our neighbors. And that'll be great. Let's pray. Father, um, we pray that you would help us to be a people that do not think of ourselves as spiritual connoisseurs or people who are great at techniques, but people who recognize that the heart of coming to you is coming to you as a person. That is, first and foremost, um, in the person of Jesus. That we're looking to Jesus to show us who you are and to show us what you've done and to show us how you care and to show us about your sovereignty and all the things that we'll see as we look to Jesus. And recognizing the Holy Spirit is constantly coming alongside to help us see Jesus better. And recognizing that what we are seeking in the world is not spirituality through techniques, but we are seeking the person of the Holy Spirit for him to come and change us and transform us and direct us and lead us and not for us to do so through techniques. And not by trying to artificially create a certain consciousness but to be conscious of the person of the Spirit leading and teaching us. We pray that you'd help us to be a more spiritual people because we love and seek your Spirit. Pray in Christ's name.
Amen.